In the last episode of the Sports Initiative podcast in 2021, we sit down with the brilliant Phil Kearney. He discusses his academic research into the skill acquisition, the implications of this research, and how it can be embedded in a practical context, and how understanding these can help can help us support individual athletes. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. Have a good Christmas and a happy new year, and I hope you enjoy. So Phil, obviously we had a nice quick catch up there. It seems like all all's good your end, but uh, really appreciate you jumping on. I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation and potentially challenge some of the experiences I've had um, in the football world. So uh, yeah, thank you for jumping on. No, looking forward to it very much. I uh, really enjoy some of the things that you've been doing with the podcast. So looking forward to the conversation. Perfect. So for people that maybe don't know you, haven't come across your work, um, do you just want to explain kind of what your background is? Um, in a brief summary and then what you're currently doing at the moment yeah so um i might start at the, what i'm currently doing and, and work backwards a little bit i'm a course director for a master's in applied sports coaching at the university of limerick which is on the west coast of ireland um my role there is primarily looking at really experienced coaches so on average we've got individuals with 10 to 15 years experience coming on the program they've been through a lot of coach development through um through their national governing bodies um i've got a i've got a dream job fundamentally um i get a group of coaches who are highly motivated to learn who are coming from all different sports all different backgrounds all different experiences who are open to sharing and to inquiring as to what others are doing um my job is to facilitate their journey over two years part-time so they uh we put them in a room i i get some sparks going and quite literally sit, sit back from there because uh, the cohorts have been absolutely fantastic in terms of what they bring through. So it's a bit of a dream job. It means I have no idea what I'm going to cover, largely speaking, week by week. But um, it's just it's really, really engaging. The variety is fantastic. Um, and uh, alongside that, obviously, the, the teaching role is one aspect of what I do, but also trying to engage in research as well. My primary primary areas of interest our skill acquisition. I'm interested in, in understanding how we accelerate the learning process, how we ensure that people can then deliver what they've learned under under pressure, uh, whether that's competition pressure, whether that's that's pressure in, in other ways, um, such as you know adventure sport. If you're you're kayaking down a river and there's nobody around, you've got to pull off this move or you're in serious trouble. That's that's, that's delivering skills under pressure too. Um, so I'm interested in skill acquisition. Uh, I'm also very much interested in youth sport, um, particularly in the context of track and field athletics, but, but broadly speaking. Um, I would also say, though, that I have uh, I've, I've too many interests. And one of my, my failings as a researcher is not being focused enough. Um, so I'm really interested in, in, uh, in scanning in football context. It'll be the most football-related research that I've done, but I'm also interested in, in how do we develop more skillful learners, individuals who can make the most out of their practice uh, environment. Um, so you know, lots of different topics grab my attention and, and, and draw me that way. Uh, prior to arriving in Limerick, I was over at the University of Chichester on the south coast of, of England, not too far from you for a while. Um, there I was looking after the, the BSc in sports science and coaching as it was at the time. And again, 
uh, really enjoy just interacting with a whole host of different uh, coaches, different sports um, over there. Um, prior to that, I, I come from a, an undergraduate in sports science, so I am first and foremost a, a scientist. First and foremost, I want to understand how stuff works. That's what really drives me. Um, but you know, the, the the there's a real focus on the applied aspect as well. So what what is it about this knowledge and this understanding that can help coaches be better at doing what they do, so that all participants in youth sport have a, have a better experience. So I guess that's a that's a, a bit of a tour of my background. No, perfect. I think we'll we'll touch on the course stuff with your learners a little bit later on because I think that will be fascinating to discuss. And obviously, the listeners would have heard me say this previously. One of the reasons I started the podcast was to learn from all different sports. So imagine you you're in a really fortunate position to be able to do that on a regular basis. So I guess the first question for me around the skill acquisition stuff is how what's the definition of a skill to start off with how do we define that so we know what what we're working from throughout this conversation yeah um it's a it's a great place to start and, and there's um i think there are many different definitions of what we mean by skill i think that what, the way i like to think about it is is solving the problem that the situation presents that's that's what we mean by a skill um it is about adapting your movements to the demands of the situation. And then if we're talking about doing that really successfully or some describing somebody who's skillful, we're talking about somebody who's doing that really effectively, really consistently, um, consistently in terms of getting a successful outcome every time, not necessarily consistently in terms of how they, they, they move. Um, we're talking about somebody doing that kind of efficiently, there's very low risk of injury, somebody who is very adaptable. And a lot of the time when we're talking about team sports in particular, uh, I think adaptability is one of the, the underrated uh, characteristics of a skillful mover. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, skill is, is really it's, it's solving the problem the moment presents. And in terms of its adaptation between maybe more open sports, such as your, your football, your basketball, et cetera, to closed sports, such as golf, uh, ones like those, how does you, your skill and the basis of skill change between those two environments? So I think that um, there's, there's been a long-standing distinction between open skills what we call open skills so um, again you're talking about passing in football anything which is dynamic it is paced by the environment that you're in so you you don't decide when to initiate the skill you pass when your teammate is free so the, 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 those are, are open skills uh, and closed skills so uh, relatively few in, in terms of, of uh, football you could consider if, if a penalty taker is ignoring the goalkeeper completely that would be a closed skill because they, they initiate the movement they the environment is predictable um track and field where i work more often we have more closed skills um but even in that instance you still have quite a lot of of you know variation in terms of the movements that people make people don't move you know the highest skilled performers do not move exactly the same way every single time in in javelin throwing for instance there's always variability in how somebody throws the javelin trial after trial after trial but that variability is is more subtle than the variability required in a football player who has to adapt their movement every single time because the distance they have to pass the angle the way they're moving 
the way the, uh, the, the teammate is moving is different every single time. So I, I, I think the, um, the distinction I'd have between the two is that the variability, the adaptations are more pronounced. They're bigger in the open skill context, but it's still really important to have that adaptability and to train adaptability in the context of closed skills as well. Perfect. So leading on to the, the acquisition side or the training side, when we're looking to um, develop a new skill or teach someone a new skill or learn a new skill ourselves, what is the, I guess, basic premise or basic process that we're going through to try and become accomplished or, or semi-accomplished at that particular uh, skill? Yeah, so, so there's lots of different models out there. Um, but one I particularly like was from Anne, uh, Anne Gentile, and she describes the first stage of learning as getting the idea of the movement. I think that's that's really nice. OK, so oftentimes you're trying to puzzle out, what do I do here? If you're if you're trying to juggle for the first time, you know, what, I, hang on, what have I got to do? Where does the ball need to be? Where do my hands need to be? Any new skill that you're trying to to learn to perform, there's an initial stage of figuring out, actually, what is it that I've got to do? You've got to form a basic coordination pattern. And that's the same whether we're talking about open skills or closed skills. It all starts in the same place, getting an idea of, of actually what am I trying to achieve here? And that can be a relatively quick process in some cases. That can be a, a longer process for, for more complex skills. But I think that's a, that, that's a common basis regardless of what we're learning. And then we move into, um, for open skills, what we call diversification. So we learn to, or when we are going to perform an open skill, and I'm going to use passing in football because it's the easiest one, um, we're going to pass in millions of different ways over the course of a lifetime playing the game. So we need to prepare to do that. And Gentile calls that diversification, learning to adapt the movement to demands the environment presents to perform in many, many different ways. And so when we've got open skills, the learning journey goes from once, as soon as you have the idea of the movement, not as soon as you've got it, a, a, a perfected action, but as soon as you have the idea of the movement, we need to start moving into more and more and more complex situations, which are requiring you to adapt in different ways. Um, whereas for more closed skills, we're going to narrow down the range of exploration. So we might not be exploring um, how to perform the skill in quite as many diverse ways, but we still need to make sure that you are learning to deliver the same result, whatever the, the situation, whatever the context might be. So again, in my um, example of track and field, an easy one to think about is, you know, what can you can you deliver um, a shot put when the 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 circle is dry versus when the circle is wet. What are the differences that you need to do to adapt your movement to be able to successfully deliver the action under each of those circumstances? So you've got to have a range of solutions, regardless of what the skill is, whether it's a closed skill or an open skill. For more closed skills, it'll be a, a smaller range of solutions, but there's still a range. For open skills, you've got to have a big range of solutions. So the question is, how do we develop uh, that, that range of solutions for players? So when we're looking at an initial process in terms of just figuring out what we're actually going to do, um, and I think that 
you know, any adult who probably has played a computer game against a kid, <laughs> you, you, you know, they'll be used to this in terms of you, you're dying about 20 times before figuring out what the game actually entails and they're sitting there laughing and haven't told you how to actually play. But in terms of that initial period where you're trying to figure out what you need to do, is there a best practice in terms of environment to allow an individual to pick up the basics or get a basic understanding which can then be transferred into the process you've just discussed there so i think you're you're mentioning of video games is is a really nice analogy because oftentimes when we look at video games we, we see some really good learning environments that are created um environments where there's lots of failure and that's not necessarily a problem um but but i think the phrase is they fail upwards so each time you fail, you see yourself getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer to, to what you're trying to achieve. So I think in one instance, um, you know, if it's an environment where it's okay to try to, 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 to fail, to, uh, to mess up, to experiment, to try it in different things. Uh, and, and that's not seen as, as somebody who, sorry, somebody who's making errors in practice. That's not seen as somebody who is not trying, but actually that's somebody who is trying, somebody who is experimenting. And so it's important for it to be okay to just play around. So again, how do you do that within your sessions? How do you set that out in terms of the explanation of what we're trying to do here to giving players the space uh, to go and, and experiment? Um, so I think that that's possibly the most important aspect that, you know, when we, when we try and learn new things, we are going to expect lots of, um, lots of mistakes, lots of errors, but we're going to be really encouraging about trying new things, trying different ways and watching very closely to see our players, are they wanting to learn? So are they in, engrossed in the task and are they failing upwards? And if we've got those two things, they're engrossed in the task, they're wanting to try, they are failing upwards. So they're, they're getting closer and closer as they, they progress. Um, and also something else to watch for is that they're that they are trying different things so you know in that initial stage i think we have a a default position as human beings whereby we we do the same thing over and over again or we find one thing that works a little bit and then we stick with that whereas actually the learning process comes from from that experimenting from trying to do things in different ways and so a really important part of the role of the coach is to uh, once you see somebody starting to to stabilize what they're doing actually give them a little bit of a prompt to keep experimenting. So in terms of that that initial, I guess, coaching environment, if we take shot put as an example, because I know you've worked in track and field, I'm guessing you wouldn't necessarily put them straight away into the circle with the set parameters of you have to throw within this area, we're looking for this distance. I'd imagine you're going to start in a very basic and very wide ranging environment for them to just develop that skill so are you looking to isolate the skill initially to begin with and just allow them the opportunity to explore in a maybe unopposed or less pressurized environment to then ramp up or can you i guess can you put a skill they're trying to develop in a chaotic and challenging environment at the same time um so People have, have, you know, there are approaches where people have tried both ways for, for a long time. I think um, it's one of the, the issues 
if you go straight to isolating the skill. And I'll actually tell a little bit of a story of, um, uh, it was a session I watched. It was at Chichester. There were coaches delivering, the student coaches would coach each other on a, a skill that they were unfamiliar with, a sport they were unfamiliar with. And the way it worked was that the participants would have to, um, sorry, the coach would have to coach a brand new skill. This, or the sport was, was handball, Olympic handball. And so he was coaching throwing. And so he broke it down to the, you know, the, the, the basic arm movements. They were standing still. They were throwing one to the other. And then he spent about 20 minutes gradually working upwards and upwards and upwards closer to the full skill. And then at the end, he gave them a five minute game. And my question for the coach when we did our debrief afterwards was, okay, how well could they throw at the start of the session? He said, how do you mean? He said, well, you, you, you made the assumption that they couldn't throw and you jumped straight into teaching them the most basic isolated action. What if they could all throw relatively well? Have you just wasted the first 20 minutes of your session? So one of the advantages we have for, for actually let's, let's throw into the deep end and let's uh, try it out in the whole messy, chaotic situation. Actually, we get a, an initial perspective, an initial view as to, okay, what is it that our learners can currently do? What's their current level? And let's be more efficient in our practice by starting with where they currently are, and, and let's push the next little bit up. So that's one consideration that you have. You've got to start with where our learners are, and we need to work from there. A second consideration is that there are very few kids who want to do the most basic shot put or javelin throwing drills. You've got a big spear. You want to throw it as far as possible down the field. Likewise, most kids, when they come to Gaelic football or football or cricket, they, they want to play the game. That's what their desire, that's what their want is there to do. So again, it's, it's our, what we're looking for is to, to feed that enthusiasm and that desire to learn. So, you know, I think a large part of throwing them into the deep end, the chaos, the, the messiness, because that's what, what feeds their desire to play and learn. If you want and if you think as a coach that they need to actually work on some more specific aspects because they, they need to understand what they're doing, they need to take a step back to, to in, in a, a shot put example. I'm watching them throw the shot and I'm watching them um, actually throw the shot as opposed to put the shot. Throwing the shot means you're throwing it like a, you would throw a tennis ball and a shot puts a hell of a lot heavier than a tennis ball. So that's dangerous for your elbow. So that's something as a coach that I've got to step in and stop. Okay, how do I how do I bring their raise their awareness of what's happening there? Well, there I might need to go in and do some more isolated work to raise their awareness of what the issue is. And once I've raised their awareness, once they've gotten the idea of what they are trying to do and what they can't do for safety reasons, then we can move them back up towards the um, towards a, a more full action i kind of wandered a little bit there in my answer but does that make sense in terms of what i'm trying to say is the sort of kind of things you're watching out for yeah no 100 percent. i guess my my question is off the back of that if you've got an individual who maybe is finding the chaotic environment very difficult 
because of the was it was it the upskill that you mentioned earlier where maybe the level of challenge for them at the moment is very very high and they're not getting an opportunity to do the I don't know particular technique so you know it might be a grubber kick in rugby or it might be a particular handoff or particular beat the man moving football how do you go around as a as a coach creating the environment where they maybe get a little bit of success so that they continue to want to strive to get better at that skill whereas if you just leave them to drown in the deep end if you like they might get to a point and go I'm not learning this skill because every time I try it I lose it or I get tackled or whatever that looks like great question so the first thing I will say is that um got to double check that they are drowning you know because one of the big things I see a lot of the time with coaches and especially coaches who are intervening in these environments think I need to pull this this individual out so that they can work on this on their own a little bit and they'll say right this is what you need to do well hang on a second let's just work through this step by step does the does the player know what the problem is actually let me try and do this in a, in a really specific example so um we've got a position in gaelic football you're the cornerback you're generally trying to to mark a corner forward who's up against you. Corner forwards are nasty people. They're small, they're quick, they're nippy, they'll turn you inside out. Horrible job trying to keep track of these individuals. Let's say you've got your cornerback or you're coaching a cornerback and the cornerback, say twice in a row now, the corner forward has made a run forward and then doubled back and gotten in behind your cornerback and the ball goes over the top, they're in on goal. That's a situation you don't want. So um coach then goes right okay come here cornerback what you need to do what you need to do here michael is you need to have a bit more distance between yourself and the the corner forward so that you can catch him if he doubles back and you you can maintain that space stop you're so making so many assumptions here right first off what does the player think is happening what does the player know about what's happening in this situation is it the player We've got to be very careful anytime we give feedback to players that that we're giving feedback that is adding to what they know and is addressing what they need to know and not just giving them redundant feedback. Because they might go, well, I know that's where I should be, but I'm really concerned because I'm watching this other player running forward and I know if I let the corner forward stay ahead of me a couple of yards, he's going to get a ball in front and he'll offload to that player running through and I can't stop that at all. So the, the the corner back has got a situation in mind that he's reading. He's seeing something happening and he's trying to respond and adapt to that situation. And you need to understand what is the player seeing? Why is the player doing what they're doing? What is the player thinking before you step in and you try and intervene with a, a particular solution? You may have a player who goes, yeah, this is what's happening. This is what I need to do to fix it. Just give me a few more minutes. I'm, 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 I'm confident I can do it. I know what I'm doing. I know what I have to do. It's just not working out right now. Perfect. Keep going as you are. Whereas if you've got a player who goes, something's going wrong and I don't know how to fix it. Okay. That's when you as a coach need to, to step in. And so the really interesting thing for me becomes how do you work out and, and really good coaches, you know, they, they've got this really nice communication system set up with players. So players can go, you know, thumbs up. I'm good. 
I know I'm, I'm working on it. I can solve this. Or no, actually, I'm a bit lost here. I need a bit of help with this one. Or I need a bit more time here. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I guess my next question off the back of that is how do you challenge individuals maybe to give a skill a go or try a skill that they're maybe uncomfortable with or that they they haven't previously seen a lot of success with in that environment? So you might have one defender that loves sitting back because he likes having play right in front of him. So he goes, I don't want to engage because having the play in front of me, I'm very, very comfortable with. Whereas you as a coach then has identified that actually stepping on at that moment in time with all the contributing factors are around is a decision that would benefit that individual in the long run. How do you go around, I guess, squeezing that little bit of enthusiasm or whatnot out of the player to give that skill a go, even though they may be hiding from it because it's not something they've traditionally received success from or are comfortable doing? Yeah, and hiding from it's a great phrase because you get that's definitely something that you'll you'll notice. And um again, this is this is the the, the joy of coaching is, is something where there's there's many different solutions. You know, and, and so you need to be aware of what's the appropriate solution to come up with in this instance. Um in some cases it might be that you start to constrain the game, you start to rig the game a little bit, whereby the opposition will have success. If the player does the thing that he wants to do and the opposition will have less success if the player doesn't. So you're almost, you're rigging the rules of the game to force it to go the, the opposite way. Um, or, you know, and there's many ways you can rig the game. You can also rig the game, of course, by having a word with the opposition. So you're having a word and you're briefing the opposition on exactly what they need to do to pull this player into a position where they realize, okay, this is a problem. I'm going to have to solve this in a different way. So that's kind of one aspect and one approach that you can go with it. But of course, there's other uh, ways that you can go about it as well. Um, and this is a case whereby you are, um, is it a case that there are, are proximal role models? Are there players that are in the next team up if you've got access to a whole range of different teams where you can pay attention to, or right, can you pay attention to what this player is doing here? Because I think you might need to solve that problem sooner. How is he solving that? Or how is she solving that in the game that, the, that you're watching in this moment in time? Um, or, or so that there's, I guess there's practice manipulations that can be used to solve it. There's dialogue that can be used to solve it. And I guess it's a case of, of, you know, what are your, what are the constraints on you as a coach? We think a lot about constraints as players. What are the constraints on you as a coach? What are the opportunities that you have available to you? And then why, why are you taking that route as opposed to any other? So it sounds like from, from what you're saying there, the, in in your opinion the decision making side is part of the skill acquisition cycle if you like in terms of you don't try and separate those two and go well this is the decision they've made we'll leave that completely separate we're just going to focus and isolate the skill from that it sounds like in your opinion all of those things are kind of balled up into one uh, absolutely and and i think it's it's Again, there's been some, I think, misconceptions about skill acquisition over the years. So one of the misconceptions is skill acquisition is, is a means to help you get better technique. Whereas actually, there's a whole body of skill acquisition research, which is around decision making. 
and you know ways to accelerate players decision making ways to accelerate players anticipation so you know th there's um, a whole body of skill acquisition research that just isn't tapped into as much as it could be so that's one aspect second aspect you know do i see the two of these as being integrated in together that they're they're combined you don't separate the the movement from the decision absolutely and again i think this is um this is something which is the case regardless of what theoretical approach that you take to skill acquisition. I think that there, there are many misconceptions about the, the theories underpinning uh, skill acquisition. And when you compare one theory to another, oftentimes what you find is people simplify the, the theory that they're comparing. Um, but regardless of what, what theory of, of skill acquisition you're working from, in, in both cases, the emphasis is you need to practice solving problems you need to practice the integration of decision making and um and movement and it's not it is a case that some theories some theoretical approaches will place a higher priority on integrating the two together others will say well there's a bit more scope to, to separate them um, but across all theoretical approaches the emphasis is there that you need to integrate decision making and movement because that's that's how you perform in the game. So looking, and we'll come back to the decision-making skill acquisition side in a second, because I'd love to hear what the research currently says on that. But looking at this from maybe a technical point of view or a technical aspect, um, if you look at particularly basketball, for example, they're a really big exponent of during the off-season, they'll do a lot of work on a particular area of development. So you hear LeBron James has been a good one, struggled with his three-point shooting at one point and then went away during the off-season, did lots of repetitions of this particular skill, has improved that when he comes back the next year. What benefits are there to isolating that type of skill, maybe in an environment where you don't have a whole team context? So he isn't going to have, well, he, to be fair, he probably could, but most people aren't going to have two teams that are going to be able to play and you go every time you get three pointer it's worth five he's gone away by himself and put extra hours extra repetition into this particular area of the game so what benefit is that and I guess on a physiological neurological basis is there any adaptations that take place by taking part of those types of training regimes so again the key question becomes what is it that you're trying to achieve through these different types of practice? Um, and going back to, to Gentile, who mentioned at the start and getting the idea of the movement. So again, when you're starting out, isolating and repetition, which is there to raise your awareness. Oh, this is what happens. Okay, when I when I I don't know make contact with this part of the foot, I can get a little bit more curve in this way, and so you can experiment and, and understand a little bit about what's happening in the movement, get a feel for what the movement should be, what it looks like. You can isolate down the skill to understand the feeling, understand the flow of information that's coming from your your joint receptors when you're performing a skill. You understand the feel. Oh, that's what it feels like. That's what I can achieve when I move in this little bit of a different way or that little bit of a different way. I think if, you're, if your purpose in isolating is to explore and to tune into the feel of the movement and what your body is doing and how you can move in different ways, there absolutely there is value to, to engaging in, in more isolated practice. The problem is when people 
um, have this this idea that you can groove a skill by repeating the action over and over and over and over and over again, and there's very little variation or, or exploration in there. Um, grooving as a concept, uh, I, I don't know where all of the, the, the origins of this came from, but one of the origin stories, which I like a lot um, for grooving a skill, comes from the experiments that, that Pavlov did with dogs. So the, the famous experiment where he'd ring the bell and the dog would salivate. Now, what a lot of people don't understand about that experiment is that the dogs were kept in a laboratory and they were kept chained to a post in a laboratory. And if you're going to keep a dog in a laboratory, you're going to need to sedate them. Or sorry, they did need to sedate them in order to keep these dogs quiet during the day. So this grooving, this idea that you repeat and repeat and repeat to groove a skill comes from how dogs who are sedated and chained in a laboratory learn a response. If you think that children playing football learn in a similar way to sedated dogs chained to a post, that's something that I think you might need to revisit. Because it's it's a very different situation, it's a very different circumstance that we're in. Um, is there value to isolated practice? What's the value? What's the reason why we engage in isolated practice? We engage in it so that we understand the movement. We develop our awareness of the movement and the possibilities of the movement. Potentially, there might be value, as you talked about, in developing our confidence to try the movement. That's a separate piece to, to the learning aspect. Um, but once we've developed an awareness of the movement, once we've developed a familiarity with what we're trying to do, oh, that's what I can do. The isolated practice has served its purpose. Spending more and more and more time doesn't get you any extra benefit once you have understood the, the you've gained your awareness of how you want to move, why you want to move in that particular way. As soon as it's served its purpose, you then need to move on to the next level. And that next level is adapting the skill. Now, that adaptation doesn't necessarily mean you jump straight away into, if we're talking about the basketball example, into a full basketball game. That adaptation can be utilizing the child's imagination and playing against imaginary opponents and executing the skills in relation to imaginary opponents. So you're, you're doing your three-point shooting, but you're doing it from different situations, different movements, patterns, uh, sorry, different uh, initial movements that you then pull back to take a shot or you drive forward uh, to your right and take a shot or you, um, you know, a whole host of different ways that you can imagine the game being played around you and you are you are adapting, responding to your imagination as opposed to, to physical players being around you. And I think the imagination of players is, is really underutilized uh, as a way of, of engaging in practice. Um, one of the Nevels, there was a really lovely research paper published where he talked about the role of imagination in his preparation for games as a professional player. Um, it was by Horrocks and colleagues. And I think that idea about how can we better use imagination is one that's, that's lost uh, an awful lot. But I think coming back to the base point, you know, the, the isolated practice serves a purpose. The purpose is to gain that understanding of what you're trying to do and awareness of how the movement should be, maybe a little bit of confidence in the movement. But as soon as you have that, isolated practice has served its purpose, and now you need to progress on and spend your time more efficiently. 
just because professional players spend an awful lot of time doing something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. For a long time, doctors and surgeons spent a lot of time bleeding patients. Then it was disproved. Randomized controlled trials, and we move on. So you know, we need to understand what, what effective practice is. And sorry, I'm, I'm going to go to one other point on this because it's, it's one I'm kind of passionate about. Um, when people talk about, you know, you can't do blocked practice, you can't do kind of repetitive practice. The, the, the idea here is where does learning come from? Learning comes from compare and contrast an awful lot in human beings. You know, we, we underutilize compare and contrast as a means to accelerate learning, I think, a lot of the time. Um, but also, blocked practice isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. So blocked practice is where you would um, execute a skill over and over again for a series of trials, then move on to the next skill for a series of trials, and then on to the next one. So each skill is practiced uh, in a block. The reason why block practice is sometimes found to be poor in uh, for, for learning is that learners can disengage. Learners can switch off because they're not being challenged, because they're not being um, forced to adapt is, is, is one way you could think about it in terms of the practice. But they're, they're switching off and they're just going through the motions as they practice. If you have individuals who are engaging in the same practice over and over again, so we'll take three-point shooting, but you are doing something to make it really engaging. You are doing something to get them really challenged. So, okay, every time you execute your three-point shoot shot, I want you to execute it in a slightly different way. You can never repeat exactly the same movement, the same one. Well, now we're doing the same shot over and over again, but our learner isn't able to switch off. They aren't able to just go through the motions. If you can get a learner to, to be engaged in the task, to be challenged, to adapt it, even in subtle ways every single time, that's a method that is likely to enhance learning. Anything that we see going through the motions, especially repeating over and over again just to groove a skill, there we're likely to see much less effective learning. And is there any research that challenges that food of thought in terms of saying that grooving actually, like you said, the some players at the top end really benefit from it and their ability to um, almost be able to go through the motions helps them in a pressurized environment? See, I think what the research shows is that we don't go through the motions. We don't execute the same motion. Even the top players and even the most... Um, uh, repetitive of actions, it's not the same movement that we see over and over again. Robots are very good at executing the same movement over and over again, but humans aren't robots. Humans are uh, biological systems, and any biological system is by definition fuzzy. When your muscles contract twice, it won't be the exact same muscle fibers that contract. It won't be the same initial conditions. The movement that you produce will be different. There's an, a, a layer of variability that is always present in human movements. But actually, that variability is a real resource for humans. We exploit that. What that means is that any slight difference in the, the initial conditions that we face, our bodies are really good at being able to make subtle adaptations to produce the same outcome. And so when you look at somebody like, um, and I haven't seen any data on, say, Steph Curry shooting basketball, but I have seen data on archers i have seen data on javelin throwers i have seen data on a range of skills where people are really good performers the best performers 
are not less variable than intermediate performers. What they show is they've got this adaptable movement pattern where they're able to compensate for the, the slightly different situations that they find themselves in so that they can still deliver the result every single time. And so when we're trying to develop skillful performers, individuals who can deliver performance under pressure or deliver performance when it counts, what's really key is we are training people to adapt their movements, to tune into you know, what that information is in the environment that, that they need to adapt to, and then encouraging them to adapt to that. I, th I think whilst you're talking, there's so much going on in my head at the moment. But for me, like example, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong in saying this, but if you look at someone like a rugby kicker, who Johnny Wilkinson was a famous one, who would go out with a bag of balls and kick and stuff, that actually if you put those balls maybe you've got 10 balls you put them in five different spots and he works his way around all of them that that can be useful practice if they're at different spots because he's having to change the way that his stride pattern is or where he's aiming or the consideration of the wind or what foot he's using potentially and all those adaptations are allowing him to create variables that then can be executed when he's actually kicking for a World Cup or anything like that. Does that sound roughly about right for what you're saying? It's part of it, actually. It's a really nice example that we might just explore a little bit more. I think, I think when people talk about practice, they think, oh, it's all the same thing. We're going to go out and we're going to practice. Well, hang on a second. There's lots of different types of practice. There's lots of different ways to practice. There's a guy called Paul Radcliffe who's with um, British Canoeing, I think. And he came up with a really nice um, uh, trio of types of practice that he talked about. The first is practice to excel. So if we're thinking about our rugby kicker in this instance, um, you know, what, what, does the, what does the performance environment look like in rugby? You're, uh, you're tired, you're fatigued, you've maybe just been tackled. Um, so you've been running around. And you've got one shot at the penalty before you go back into the game again. And there's probably going to be pressure. There's probably going to be, you know, wind conditions, everything else. So how over the course of practice, if we're interested in practice to excel, practice to deliver what we've learned in competition, what does that practice look like for a rugby kicker? It might be that, you know, you, you blow the whistle. And while it's a water break for most of the players during the training session, actually the kicker needs to kick a penalty. And there are consequences if they miss or if they score. So that's practice to excel. It's practice which is designed to mimic the competition environment as closely as possible. But that's not the only type of practice that we do, because you can't learn very much in that situation. You can't, there's, there's, there's um, too high stakes to perform. And we need to slow things down. We need to reflect. We need to think when we're trying to learn. We need time to compare and contrast, time to experiment a little bit. Um, so Paul also talked about practice to embed. So practice to embed is where we go, okay, you know, I, I've been working on this aspect of my rugby kicking. I'm now going to go out with a bag of balls. I'm going to set up, you know, maybe five or six different locations around the pitch. And I'm going to visit location after location. And I'm going to do my kicking and I'm going to look to see, can I, you know, maybe it's a it's a different uh, point of contact on the ball or maybe it's a different uh, trajectory you want the ball to take as you're kicking. But you're going to practice lots and lots of kicks, lots more than you'll get to take in the practice to excel situation. But you're going to practice those in that that 
practice to embed situation. So how can I take this thing that I've been practicing and make sure it'll translate into to competition uh, or sorry, broadly ready to, to, to take into the next stage. But there's another type of practice which he's talked about, which is called practice to explore. So let's say you've got a kicker and the kicker is operating at maybe, you know, 55% success. And he has no idea why. Something's going wrong somewhere, obviously, because he's 55% success, but he doesn't know why. Okay, you take your bag of bowels, you go out, you take one spot and you kick, kick after kick after kick, and you're trying to, to tune in and figure out what's happening here. What am I doing? Why is this successful sometimes, unsuccessful other times? What's causing this, uh, this to happen? And, um, that might be a case where you're, you're experimenting with different things. What happens if I, you know, try and make contact with this tire pipe? part of the ball or what happens if I try and adjust this part of my run-up or what happens if I you experiment with and explore lots of different ways of kicking the ball but you could do that from the same spot over and over again because you're engaged you're comparing you're contrasting you're analyzing even though it's it looks really repetitive practice it's not because you're really engaged in exploring your practice so he called that practice to explore and so at different stages you know, in, in a player's development uh, of a particular skill, sometimes practice to explore might be appropriate, might be what you want to do. Sometimes it's, okay, I know what I need to do to get better. I've identified the aspect of the skill or the skill that I need to improve. And so I'm going to do some practice to embed to develop that. And then your other section is, is practice to excel. But even though I've described those as three kind of discrete stages, you know, I, I think practice to explore probably sits on its own as a discrete phase, but practice to embed, practice to excel, I wouldn't see those as two distinct stages. I think I'd have almost a blend. So when you're starting off, it's mostly practice to embed, but you have a little bit of practice to excel in there. And as you're moving towards competition, it's mostly practice to excel, but there might be a little bit of, of practice to embed in there as well. So I think when we think about practice, we, we, we don't think about actually what is our objective here? What are we trying to achieve? And then what's the best form of practice to help us to achieve that? Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I'm, I'm just thinking now, I, I really like the example you've used around the water break because you're utilizing time that's earmarked elsewhere to challenge that individual. And I'm just thinking in a football context, you know, if you want your players to practice penalties for whatever reason, that could be a really useful way of doing it equally with finishing. So, you know, you, one discussion I had on my A-license with discussed before was someone saying, why do we give strikers 20 opportunities to practice their finishes when they may only get three or four in a game? And it was a valid point and brought up a lot of discussion. But I like what you're saying there, where actually we could play a game where they may naturally get some different types of finishes. But in between sets and reps, we might say, right, the two strikers for both teams you've got an opportunity to get an extra goal for your team by completing this type of embedded practice. And it's a really good way of fluctuating between the two types of practice within a session where you can support players on their development areas or super strengths, et cetera. Yeah. And again, you know, there's, there's a couple of different ways you could do that. It doesn't say for the rugby kicker, it doesn't just have to be on the water break, you know, because there will be times in the game where the, you know, the out half is down injured or the out half has been pulled into a rock. So the team has to adapt 
because they're still playing, even though the, the, the out half isn't there. So, you know, you could use it to pull the out half out. The out half has to take their kick while the game still goes on and the other players have to adapt to that. So that's kind of all part of it. Um, but equally, as you're talking about, you know, we're, we're going to sometimes, sometimes there is a need for a type of practice where the player gets to take 20 shots. Sometimes there's, it, it's more appropriate that they get three shots and let's see if you can, you can deliver. Um, and you know, what, what is that? You, you've got three shots. Let's see if you can deliver. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a, a very, um, uh, highly constrained situation. You know, if, if you put a, a striker in a situation where it's a, a three on one, the striker is going to get a shot on goal, but you've got your, your running tally. By the way, over the course of today's session, we're going to give you three, three on ones. Let's see how many you can convert. And we'll, we'll take our top strikers and, okay, end of the day, let's see who comes out on top. And, and, you know, you get bragging rights because bragging rights are a really powerful way of motivating players within a team, I think, as to, you know, the competition between members to, to deliver that. Yeah, no, it's really good. I think that definitely food for thought on how we, we use those practices and how you use practice and also what's the point behind it rather than just saying practice, actually what element are we looking to support them with? And then that will reflect on how I support or challenge. It might be if it's to excel, well, I might increase my vocality to put pressure on the individual in that circumstance because that's what we're trying to replicate. Or if it's one where they're trying to learn or uh, develop the skill right at the beginning, it might be I'm going to give them a chance to explore and then maybe demonstrate a way that I could give it a go and go and have an explore it a little bit again so I think the way that you can change and adapt your coaching behaviors along that that three areas is really really interesting uh, and it's what you said there about you know what does the player need so it was a lovely example you gave earlier LeBron James has James has figured out that this area of his even though he's a fantastic all-around player he could bring this this aspect of his game to a higher level so he's designing some purposeful practice to address that one area of his game so that's you know a really important lesson for for players as a whole or coaches working on players you know what what is the 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 rate limiter what is the bit that if we improve that aspect of their game that's really going to make the biggest difference to that player but also i've seen a lot of examples where the the issue is a player isn't delivering in the game and so the coach goes back and designs more practice to embed. But it's not practice to embed that's the problem because the player does really well in the practice to embed. It's practice to excel that the player needs to allow them to tra tra transfer, to be able to deliver that skill under pressure. So that's where the intentions become really important. What is the bit that this player needs to practice? And then how do we work that in? And it's especially challenging within a team context. But how do we work that in within a team context? Perfect. So moving towards the team, and I am conscious that we're, we're close to the time that we've allotted for this, but we mentioned earlier around the decision-making aspect of skill acquisition, and you mentioned about the research into that. Just for people who maybe are unaware of what some of the prominent research in that area is, could you just describe developing individuals in this area? What does the research, where does it kind of, what avenue does it take us down? So some of the research that's really nice is looking at, you know, what's the backstory 
of individuals who are better decision makers. So Andre Rocca is at St. Mary's University in Twickenham. He's got some lovely research in football specifically on this as well. Um, and what he's looked at is the, the individuals who are better decision makers, who are more creative players, they have a greater history of informal play playing football in the park, on the beach, outside of kind of structured training sessions, they seem to have a, a greater history of that within their development compared to players who are poor decision makers. So if we're talking about this over a long time scale, well, actually, how do we promote informal play? How do we offer more opportunities and ensure players are getting enough opportunities to engage in informal play? And we have seen lots of examples where organized sessions now include a greater amount of informal play but i think there's scope for for you know exploiting and developing that even further in a number of ways um so that's that's one kind of aspect that we've we've got um over a, a shorter term period i think that there's some really nice um there's some really nice research that, again, Andre has done looking at uh, what are called talk aloud protocols. So getting players to respond to what they're seeing and why they're seeing it within game situations using videos to do this. Um, and this, this has been mostly used as a, as a diagnostic tool to, to, to understand the differences between skilled and less skilled players in terms of you know what are they seeing, what are they predicting. Um, I think there's also scope for this to be used as a development tool as well. So in terms of... Um, raising players awareness of the the where they need to be paying attention to in game context and how they need to respond and what their options are now the suggestion here isn't that you know video based and and, and talking and verbal reports about what you see in the videos and what you're predicting that on its own will enhance your performance on the pitch the point i'm making is that that kind of engagement raises your awareness or directs your attention towards maybe key sources of information when you go back onto the pitch. And so it's there to prime you as to where to look and what to think about when you're on the pitch itself. Um, and then there's a whole series of work as well, uh, which looks at, at various aspects of video-based training as well, um, and looks at uh, how some of these aspects of video-based training might be used to enhance player decision-making also. So I think, um, as I said, the, the really nice introduction to this research, really accessible introduction to this research comes from, from Mark Williams' book, The Best. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Perfect. I think you've given myself and anyone listening um, really good sound bites to go away and kind of do a little bit of research ourselves so um yeah i am conscious this is around the time that we we set so one one last question for me which is um who's i guess the most um, impressive practitioner or other researcher that you've that's been in this area with you and why um i'm gonna i'm gonna go with a, a very niche uh, option. So, uh, hurling is a, a, one of the Gaelic games that gets played. Um, and I've had a real pleasure of supervising, uh, now Dr. Paul Knurk as he's completed his PhD in this area. Paul's work has been looking at, um, game-based approaches within Gaelic games. Um, and just the level of detail, the level of thought in terms of his planning processes. And, you know, I, I've as soon as I, I got an insight into what he was doing and how he was planning, uh, I made sure I brought him straight into to the, the coaching masters to deliver sessions on this because he's the finest planner that I have come across. And I think his incredible success in the game is in large part due to the 
the depth and sophistication of his planning processes. And I think that um, that for me is a, you know, is a real important aspect when we're looking for, for really good practitioners. It's care and attention to detail in the planning, not just of the activities and the sequence of activities and the dialogue and questioning and interactions, but that all of that is underpinned by a really sound understanding of, of some pedagogy. So something that you are following as a template and as a, as a guide. Um, and so Paul has certainly been perhaps not somebody who would be known more, more broadly, uh, but certainly within Ireland would be a, an outstanding practitioner. Perfect. Listen, we'll really appreciate your time, a great conversation. And hopefully at some point in the future, we can uh, catch up again because I know we haven't even touched on half the stuff we discussed pr uh, prior to this. So, yeah, really appreciate your time and catch up with you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.